When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This just hasn't been normal. It's not normal to do this in the middle of a pandemic when the Senate's closed down. It wasn't normal to do it when you've got a president that's tweeting out, I want nine justices so they can count my ballots. It's really important to include in our push for more funding for public education, that piece of it that's about counselors in schools and all of the support. As my buddy John Lewis said, it's a sacred opportunity to right to vote. You can make a difference. If young black women and men vote, you can determine the outcome of this election. Not a joke. You can do that. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. A hug. I hate to admit it. But I'm in a lawn sign war upstate. I told you all I think that my cop lady next door neighbor, who is, I was told, tired of Black Lives Matter, sob. She must be so tired, just like George Floyd's family and Brianna anyway. So my tired police officer Trumpite neighbor, she has a big blue Trump flag that gets entangled with her stars and stripes, and she leaves both of these flags out all day and night without lights in the soaking rain. Actually, sidebar here. I know you're not supposed to kneel before old glory or, of course, burn it to cinders, but those flag-reverent people don't seem to care about the old flag regulations that I learned as a brownie. Like, light the flag if you're going to leave it up at night and take it down in the rain. If they're so precious about the flag, why don't they? uh, Anyway. All right, so this neighbor has her Trump flag, and I've been trying to treat it like the houseboy of Clouseau in those Pink Panther movies that is there to kind of attack me every time I encounter it to keep me on my toes, and it definitely rankles. So the other day, I put up a discreet, simple Biden-Harris sign. Not a flag, for Pete's sake, a short lawn sign, because other people had told me that you have to get over your snobby, squeamish dislike of lawn signs and give comfort and ballast to other Democrats and sane people driving by who, like me, might feel sickened by other displays of support for Grandpa Fascisto in the Oval Office. Okay, so up my sign went. And for two days, it stayed solid, unmolested. And I found this very collegial. Here we are, neighbors with opposing views, both expressing them, but with speech and not coming to blows. But then they countered. Up went two giant banners with Trump all over them. Each one could have crushed with its garishness and sheer size 14 of my little elegant Biden-Harris faints. Ooh, I'd give them a piece of my mind, I thought. That was not sportsmanlike. It was so aggressive. It was unladylike. I was burning up inside. Sure, yeah, I could add a supplementer sign to my sign saying Black Lives Matter or something meek about we should be nicer in politics. 
or I could dick out and deface and vandalize. I could put like only losers vote for Trump on my lawn and thus serve as devastating commentary on their hideous banners and flags. I got so deep in my seething head about this that I imagined stomping over to this cop and telling her about the Mueller report and the call to that Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, and all the times that Trump has violated the Hatch Act, probably even the Logan Act, and definitely the Emoluments Clause. Oh, I'd tell her, burn, burn, burn. And also, I'd say, Trump is mean as a snake. And he said both sides. And also, he's been married three times. And in my view, isn't a very good Christian and doesn't seem to have a very good heart. That would show her. I thought better of it. I imagined my supreme eloquence would fall on, well... Maybe she'd turn a camera on me and sell it to Fox News with a thousand laughing so hard I'm crying emojis, and then also call me a Trump derangement syndrome Karen, and she'd be right. And that video would actually cost Joe Biden votes. So I don't know about the Democratic Party being in disarray, as the cliched headline goes, but this Democrat is in disarray. And I'm going to have to put a Biden-esque lid on my emotions or I'll short out my house with neon lights saying feeble slogans like be more kind. And maybe I'd even start writing sternly worded letters to Sean Hannity suitable for parody. My guests today are two members of the New York Times editorial board, the acting editorial page editor Kathleen Kingsbury, who managed to pull together an extensive opinion project called The Verdict about Trump's unfitness for office. One of the great contributors to The Verdict is Farah Stockman. She writes an additional piece about Trump's false populism. Katie and Farah, welcome to Trumpcast. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks. So I have a, a little spiel that I want to lay on you, which is that sometimes with Trump, or especially going to this election, I feel like I'm studying for the LSATs and I want to have in my pocket every single reason that the president represents a clear and present danger to America. And then I get stuff wrong. Like I remember the kids in cages, but I forget the miserable chaos at the airports the first weekend of the Muslim ban. I forget that he nearly attacked Iran. I forget all the street crimes committed in his name. I remember he raped my friend Eugene Carroll, but I forget that he shut the government down and convulsed all these constitutional crises. Jared Kushner's democide, the Mueller report that he managed to slip the knot of with Barr's help, the designation of New York City as an anarchist jurisdiction. What this package elegantly does is somehow find language to capture all of those offenses and even find themes in them. It's such an ambitious undertaking. Did you do it in part, Katie, for people like me who kind of can't find our way out of what these four years have meant and represented? I think you've nailed a lot of what our motivation was here. We started working on this package back in August, actually right around the time that Farah joined the editorial board. We really felt that it was important that we put down on paper, because it is, it's impossible to remember all of the things that have happened over the past really five years, but four years of the Trump administration, you know, because there's just been an assault of 
daily abuses of power, daily corruption schemes, daily hateful rhetoric. And we really, you know, as an editorial board, we have spent the last four years cataloging all of the president's breaking down of norms and institutions Mm -hmm. in this country. We've written about it on a weekly basis, how he goes up against just basic principles of rule of law. Mm -hmm. But we actually have also been trying very hard to add nuance to that conversation to make sure that we're not just pounding on the table because that quickly becomes easy to ignore. And so we felt like this was our chance. We wanted to make sure that we lay everything out. We didn't hold our punches, that we really presented the nation with what the damage could be if Trump is reelected for another four years. And this isn't something I don't I can't think of a precedent. This is a kind of it's a it's a decisive counter endorsement. There's got to be a name in the in the newspaper profession for what this is. I mean, this is it's just such a dire warning. I know one of the letters compared it to one of the founding documents of the nation. And it's not there's nothing grandiloquent about it, but it just has a relentless clarity, the opening essay, and then is unpacked in these reported pieces, shorter pieces that are other pieces that give dimension to the claims in the opening essay. But how did you alight on the tone of the opening essay, which you call the verdict? It starts with the verdict. We did really want to create an artifact for history. Um, You know, we wanted to get all of this down on paper. We felt pretty much going into it, that it had to be direct, that it had to, um, again, not leave anything on the table. Um, We felt that um, we had to explain what we had seen over the past four years, what the American people have seen time and time again, but also make sure we had the evidence to back that up. You know, Mm -hmm. we tried very hard in the writing of that first essay to make sure that there was a piece later in the package that really went into the details, into the specifics of the point that we were making. And I think we succeeded in that. We didn't want to make it personal against the president. We didn't want to make it something that would be easily undermined by, for instance, ideology. We wanted to really lay it out for our readers. And one of the most remarkable things about the package is that Fox News picked it up. Uh, They wrote a news article about it. And they very, very generously quoted from the first lead editorial. And we actually saw quite a bit of our traffic driven from that piece. And, you know, it it reached a, a wider audience than what we were anticipating. What did they quote? And how did they give context for it? I mean, they certainly, they must not have said, the New York Times nails it again. (laughs) Yeah, of course not. You know, I don't have it in front of me. I wish I did. But, you know, they actually, it was pretty straight article. It essentially just said, you know, the, in something unprecedented. And and you're right. Like, I don't know of any newspaper doing something quite to this extent, no, by newspaper, I mean, of course, editorial board, doing something to quite this extent to make a case against a presidential candidate. Um, you know, we have been making endorsements as the New York Times editorial board since um, Abraham Lincoln. Oh. And we did endorse Joe Biden a couple of weeks ago. We did make the case that his steadiness and experience and clarity of purpose and compassion were what the nation needed. But we did very purposely leave Trump out of that endorsement. Uh, mm-hmm. And we focused mm-hmm. our energy on this package. And, you know, we have heard from people 
one of the most consistent themes in the past two days has been the fact that there were so many points in there that people had forgotten, that yes. they'd forgotten it had ever happened. Yeah. It's so easy. The, you know, it's been so relentless. Um, yeah. And it, just that alone, I think we feel good was a service to the readers of the package. David Korn on this show said something that it didn't hit me at the time, but I've thought about it many times since, which is that a tablecloth, I don't know if this is a, you know, aphorism that people know, but that a tablecloth with a big spot of red wine on it, one spot, the spot stands out. But if you spill red wine over the whole thing, it like starts to kind of blur together and look like something you could actually set the table with because you, it doesn't stand out as a spot. And that seemed to him a little bit like Trump. I think that was in 2017. We've got a lot more red wine spots since then. But it is astounding that you don't, you know, Nixon's transgressions at Watergate were you know, stood in the foreground, were thrown into, thrown into relief against even his actions in Vietnam or his cultural conservatism. And that made it possible to say, well, we're indicting him for this reason. This is bipartisan or we're sorry, we're, we would remove him for these reasons. And that is missing with Trump. And there's something, there is something about the pervasiveness of his racism, corruption, um, deceit that makes him so overwhelming. I did notice that one of the letters you got from a Trump voter and the Times did dutifully publish people who are unconvinced by this essay, just ignored every single thing in these pieces, in this package. It's to say instead, I think he connects with voters and I'm going to vote for him. So, it, you know, in a weird way, the attack on him is much longer and wordier than the defense of him. The defense is often, but I still like him. Fair is really the expert on Trump voters. Yes. Farrah, you know, as a reporter, has spent so much time in the middle of the country, especially connecting with the people who chose Donald Trump to be their president four years ago. And I think can really weigh on this more than I can. I'll just say the one thing is that we've seen time and time again is this administration has perfected the art of distraction. And it's really important that we have clarity going into the ballot box this year. Yeah. Farah, I read the essays out of order. I just want to say again to both of you, I've, I really found this, you know, it's like a mini masterpiece. It's just, it's so, you know, I write editorials for the LA Times and just, I've wanted to have some kind of, I don't know, some way of understanding the themes altogether or else you're just chipping off observations and, you know, even jokes as things go along. And I really, this was very beautiful and powerful. So um, I was looking through the various options of things to read. And I, for some reason, I just thought his fake populism, that is the part of Trump that I understand the least. And I went to Farah's piece, which has reporting in it. And I've just been quoting it ever since. Really powerful. So you've been, Farah, living with or rolling with or coming to understand the working class voters who are usually dismissed on the coasts as simply racist, but you found out much, much more about them. So tell me first about, about your reporting and second about the charge that economic anxiety is just a fig leaf for racism. So I went and basically spent about seven months following these steel workers as their factory shut down. Mm-hmm. 
uh, in Indiana. And then I followed them for years afterwards to figure out what would happen to them. And I followed a white woman, a black man and a white man. And I, I should say that not everyone in that factory voted for Trump and the union there actually endorsed Bernie Sanders. Hmm. Um, but uh, a lot of them did vote for Trump. Probably about half of the white workers voted for Trump. And I learned so much from these people. Just And the reason I chose this factory was because Trump tweeted about it. He tweeted about them personally. He made them feel personally important. Uh, he called out the boss of the factory. He said, this, you know, this has got to end no more. Another one going to Mexico, no more. He was vocalizing what they'd been saying for 10 years. And he was vocalizing what Democrats used to say, right? Mm -hmm. And Sherrod Brown still says it, but you don't have that flavor of Democrat anymore. Like Trump just ripped, ripped from the pages of, you know, red meat unionism that, I mean, he exploited a vacuum that had been left by a lot of Democratic leaders when they went sort of centrist and yeah. and just saw these people sitting there. And so the I learned so much from them. But one of the things I learned is that the working class is not white. <laughs> like most of those, mm -hmm. most of those factories, many of those factories had a lot of black people in them. Uh, that factory that I, I was following was about 40% black. And so, you know, the charge that blue collar people are just bigots and racist in a certain way, you understand it because the, the history of unions is is a history of excluding black people and excluding women. But in the 70s, like after this, after the Civil Rights Act, a, a lot of those factories had to share their jobs, right? They had mm -hmm. to open up and that was exactly the time the factory started moving away. So, mm. you know, liberals mm. champion the idea of affirmative action and 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 evenly or fairly distributing these jobs, but have totally forgotten this notion of keeping the factories here, making sure the jobs actually still exist. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they were sort of two sides of, of, of the same coin. And these people had been so like, what was so amazing to me is that black and white men and women, they all talked about politicians as crooks. Their standards were so low. Like mm -hmm. they just thought they, you know, you and I, college educated people were raised to believe my vote matters and, you know, my engagement will, you know, change things. These yeah. people were raised to believe they will ignore you. They are yeah. not really listening to you. They're not really listening to your concerns. And they had seen it time and time again. Every four years, people come down to the union hall, shake everybody's hand and then go away. And then more factories would leave more jobs would be gone. And, mm -hmm. you know, these were the lucky ones who still had good paying union jobs, paying $25 an hour with health benefits. They were like the last of the Mohicans in Indianapolis, you know, and you, we, we would be at these rallies outside the plant and people would stick up their middle fingers sometimes at, at the union workers because they, they were people in the new economy, in the gig economy, where you're making $11 an hour, of course, unemployment's low because you need two jobs to survive. And so like mm -hmm. these people had felt so abandoned uh, that they weren't really voting. And I, I interviewed so many people who would vote cast the first ballot in their life for Donald Trump in 2016. And I'm afraid wow. that if more people like that come out of the woodwork, we could see a surprise in November because there were a lot of people that, that felt totally left out of the political system. And the more that I understood their point of view, 
the more that I, I, I couldn't argue with it. Our economy has been designed, shaped by trade policy, by tax policy. It has been designed for college-educated people. And college-educated people make up a third of the American adults in the United States. Sorry, that's a big rant. That's probably more than... Oh, God, please. I want more rants. More than you uh, (laughs) asked for. On the contrary. That's that's exactly what I what I was am interested in hearing from you. I'm just yes, I'm reeling for from we might see a surprise in November. I've just decided to ignore that. Okay. Um, but um, but uh, I don't think you can fun. ignore it. I don't think you can ignore it. I I spend four months this summer in Wisconsin. Um mm-hmm. it's where my parents are from. Uh, I lived in Waukesha County. Um and there are still many, many people who support Donald Trump in Wisconsin. And it's mostly, you know, at least in part because they are not hearing a message from the Democrats that they want to engage with, that they feel is convincing enough. And also, frankly, I mean, it gets a little bit to what Farah was talking about, that there are a lot of people in this country who feel like they are about to be left behind, even if they're you know, still doing very, very well. And I, I agree with Farah that it's not just middle-class white people. I think that it's also, there's there's d- depths there. And back in 2016, I also spent the summer in Wisconsin just by coincidence. And I remember going to Trump rallies and seeing an incredibly diverse crowd there. Yes. And that was really my first indication that he was going to win. Yeah. And I don't think that we've seen a, a total shift yet. You know, 30 million people have already voted. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a sign, a good sign for Democrats. But, you know, people still need to get out the vote. People still need to go and um, cast their ballot if they want change. I I also think that the message, if the message is that these people are stupid and racist, how how are you expecting to get them, those people to then come out and vote for your party? (laughs) You know, that that's been the message. It's been like, okay, economic anxiety doesn't exist. It's all racial anxiety. We talk about these things in silos, right? Yeah, as if yeah. they don't interact. And it's like, right. if you and I, the irony, or I don't know, hypocrisy of people in a law firm or a newsroom that is like overwhelmingly white, far whiter than the factory, mm-hmm. right? Turning around and telling them they are racist. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, some of these articles don't even bother to 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 quote a Trump supporter. And so, I mean, I just feel like that we've gone away from the act of persuasion. Democrats have a great argument to make for these blue collar people because these people used to be Democrats. Like, yes, we left them. They didn't leave us. This point you make about overlooking or trying to forgive Bill Clinton and just trying to say that, you know, NAFTA or or trade with China or some of the Democrats' policies, that it would be okay. They'd always been Democrats. Yeah. They would, you know, Democrats were for the union. Tell that story because it's sort of, I think, what we're experienced over the last four years is this referendum on so much that went before it. And oh, you sort yeah. Of think, yeah. Where did I go wrong? I didn't realize how uniquely hated Hillary Clinton was simply because of Bill, like yes. simply because of Bill did NAFTA and the normalization of trade with China. So this guy named Tim Mathis is a is a really good example. So he was a diehard union guy, grew up in a diehard union family. He was the son of an auto worker, the grandson and great grandson of a coal miner. These are union people who had never voted for a Republican in their life. They thought of the Republicans as, you know, the greedy corporations and the Democrats fought for the the little man, the working man. And when I met him, he 
by the, so so he tells the story much better than I do. He says, you know, I believed so much in Bill Clinton that I didn't mind, you know, when he signed NAFTA. I believed that it that it would create millions of jobs. That's what you know that you know Bill Clinton said it would create lots of good paying union jobs here in this in the states. The other promises of NAFTA were that. Mexico would get rich and then they'd start to buy our products and then and then they wouldn't send any more undocumented immigrants to the United States because they'd have jobs in Mexico and they wouldn't be coming and and competing with us for our our unskilled jobs. So the, these were all the the promises of NAFTA. And he he said when Ross Perot ran and said that thing about the giant sucking sound, you know, NAFTA's going to have jobs going south. Sound. I always think about that. Go oh ahead. my god, he said yeah. that man is an idiot. Why? Because Bill Clinton's a Democrat. He would never do that to us. Uh-huh. And then, you know, and then came China, the normalization of trade with China, which was a much bigger impact on the U.S. economy, actually, than NAFTA. I mean, NAFTA is a mar- marginal effect, both positive and negative. But China, the tr- normalization of trade with China fundamentally restructured American manufacturing. Uh, I think you could argue that. Anyway, by the time the factory started closing, he's like every night on the news, there was a new, you know, factory closing. It was just like an onslaught. And then my factory closed, his factory closed and moved to to China in 20 in 2004. He bounced around for a few years, finally got another job at uh, Rexnord, the, the plant in Indianapolis where I found him. And then that moves to Mexico. And so he's just like, Ross Perot was right. <laughs> Ross Perot was totally right. And he's been sold out. And I live it. And no amount of punditry on the television can say otherwise. Nobody can convince him otherwise, right? And the, and yeah. the people who come on TV and say, "Well, you know, free trade is good for us," don't realize how that sounds to someone who knows it isn't true for him as an individual, right? Yeah, yeah. And what what happened to Tim, by the way, is fascinating because it flies in the face of everything you think of these blue-collar workers, right? Tim, uh, the last time I talked to him was probably about six months ago. He sold his house, he sold his truck, and he bought a one-way ticket to the Philippines. He is trying to try to live the rest of his life in the Philippines, because he's like, I'm too old to get another job at a factory that's probably just going to move away. I can't do anything else. My back hurts. My arms hurt. My, my you know, I, I'm tired of starting over. And one thing we don't realize about blue collar people is that seniority matters. So these are guys that would have spent 20 years at a factory and retired and you get on the day shift. Your life becomes better the older you get. Every single time a factory closes, those men with seniority, men and women with, with seniority, have to start over again. So now this crop of people, they're all working the night shift. They never see their wives and husbands because they're working from like 11 p.m. To, to 6 in the morning. I mean, it, every single time you have to start over again, it's not like you're made whole if you get another job. You're starting. Yeah. Imagine going back to the job you had right after college. And so these factories are their social networks. So you can't even, you know, the reason people get jobs is through their unions and through their friends, right? And everybody you know is out of work because the factories are all, you know, it's just like their, their world. Imagine if your college closed and then someone told you, oh, degrees from this college don't, don't, don't matter anymore. And everybody from that college, well, you know, sorry. Uh, 
you know, sorry, the, the world has changed. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just to put into context, just to add on to Farah or add the context of what Farah is saying there and think about what Donald Trump's message is, which is, I'm going to save your job. I'm going to save the respectability and the way that you provide for your family. Whereas the Democrat answer to that, particularly in 2016, they've gotten better and more precise about it, was let's create some job retraining programs. Social safety nets. Social safety net, exactly. And I think that that is just really important to remember when you think about what the appeal of, of Trump is. So job retraining and social safety net, what those sound like, um, I mean, I, I took time out of journalism and, and tried my hand at marketing. And if that was job retraining, and I think it was, it was very, it was just humbling and demoralizing to do, as you say, Farah, start again at the bottom and where no one knew me and my accomplishment, past accomplishments didn't count yeah. for anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it, is that what job retraining sounds like? Because oh. I still, to my to my um, aging neoliberal <laughs> ears, uh, job retraining with green jobs or high tech jobs still sounds um, like something you might hear in a TED talk and think, oh, that's going to work. Yeah. Well, we have utterly <laughs> failed. There, yeah. there is something called the Trade Assistance, TAA, Trade Assistance Program, that came with NAFTA, right? And I guess it even predated NAFTA. But there's literally a counting of all the jobs lost to trade. And if your, your job, if your factory gets on that accounting, you get something called TAA. And so where you get, they, you know, it sounds good when you, when you look at it. Most of the people I followed were not interested in it. There were too many hoops to jump through. It was like a full-time job just to figure out a program that, and, and the things that they retrain you for are stuff like commercial driver's license, trucking, oh, right? Yeah. That's not a job that's going to exist for very long, right? With, we're having, we're going to have a bunch of, you know, millions of truck drivers about to lose their jobs when, when automated vehicles come. So they're not looking, so that's, there's that. If you look at the government's own research into at the success of TAA, people who do TAA programs earn less than those who didn't. And wow. so like, I mean, it's just, it's striking on a number of levels. And they say, well, it still might be justifiable, this program, if it made it politically possible to do free trade. So mm. that basically, we've mm. it's a fig leaf that we've given people and they don't really buy it. A lot of them don't really buy it because it doesn't really work. These are people, a lot of these people at that factory came right out of high school. They have, um, they did not ever, you know, some of them have GEDs and, you know, it's not that easy to make them into computer programmers. And I just say that, like, if you look at a country like Germany, they have done, they've also lost factory jobs, but they've done a much better job of preparing their workforce for the future. And they have much higher uh, skilled manufacturing they th their union members sit on the boards of corporations they have something akin to an industrial policy 
where government sits around and says, how can we make sure that these people that, you know, in high school, you can start doing half a day at a, at a company where you then learn manufacturing and they're, they make companies train workers. And we do not. We are allergic to the concept of industrial policy. We pretend that it's all, you know, it's all, oh, the free market. It, the free market will figure it out. Well, guess what? Like, if you were sitting around right now in a high school in some of these towns, you have no idea what you should study such that 10 or 20 years from now, you'll actually have a job that will pay your bills. Yeah. And the answer Democrats have seems to be free college, uh-huh. which, which doesn't, it, first of all, it's not free. If you're working mm-hmm. class, you have to still pay for your rent. You still have to pay for your food. And um, if you look at Indiana actually has a kind of a free college program for students in a certain income bracket, half of them drop out with debt. Hmm. And, and so it's not, a you know, we need good blue collar jobs that people can live on without going for four years to learn a liberal arts degree. And the more that we talk about college as the baseline of normal, we have left the American people behind because we are a minority. College educated people are a minority in this country. And yet we run everything. We control everything. We make all the decisions. If we were a tribe, we would be controlling every Fortune 500 company, every judgeship, all houses of Congress. And so like, you know, blue collar people who don't have that college degree and don't necessarily aspire to it, You guys have just rigged. This is the rigged the economy talk that you heard from both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. That's a majority of the country right there. Thank you. And this is great. So I sometimes think about Mitt Romney's pitch to voters. And he was very in those days. So 2012, he was pushing for entrepreneurship. That was sort of both, both neoliberals and neoconservatives loved entrepreneurship. Look at how that went down like a lead balloon with the working class. Yes, exactly. Although I know you're talking about the industrial Midwest. My mother's from McDowell County in West Virginia. I think it's now the poorest county in the nation or sometimes shares that dubious distinction. But mm-hmm. um, but so coal miners and coal miners have represented in in the imagination of, you know, of the elites and in Trump's imagination at times, that's what the working class looks like rather than um, in, in your view, generationally, people went into these, uh, went into auto working and coal mining. Just uh, my mother always says, you know, it was never a great job. Nobody ever thought it was a great job, but you, you know, you get nostalgic about it when there are no jobs. Yes. And though, in addition, with coal mining, you know, in everybody's, with a sentimental place in everybody's heart, the next generation, so, you know, people 60 who still didn't get good coal, you know, or mining jobs, they came away with something that this organization, Project Opportunity, that did a test, uh, a test of West Virginians on what they considered the American dream. I promise this is going somewhere. Oh, yeah. And the choices were home ownership sending your kids to college or being your own boss. And the overwhelmingly, this is 2012, people yeah. said being your own boss. Interesting. And I thought, oh, that's amazing. They'll like scalable jobs or people will make crafts and then they'll go on Etsy and who knows, you know, and then they'll take it from there. No, they are people who wanted to be rock, a country star, music stars yeah. or massage therapists. Yep. And now, 
you have people laid off at the Rexford factory in your piece who are essentially their, quote, own bosses in the sense that they're underemployed but doing gig work and, what, filing 1099s or just in some kind of cash economy? So this is, no, I think there is a glimmer of hope, right? This is a future maybe, right? If, If we can decouple healthcare from work, then these people can actually try their hand. And there were some entrepreneurial people. The the black man that I followed was named Wally, and he had a long dream of being uh, opening a barbecue. He was an amazing guy and had a really, he, he had climbed up into the factory to a position that he was finding it hard to leave. But in his mind, he wanted to leave. And because he wanted to, that was his long dream. And he had so many entrepreneurs in his family. And we never talk about black entrepreneurs. Rarely do we, especially if they're working class. But there are so many black businesses, partly because even if they're not registered, partly because that was the fallback. You didn't want to be at the mercy of of the white man giving you a job. Mm -hmm. And you wanted to be able to employ your relatives who were coming out of prison. That was literally, he, his son was huh. coming to prison and he was like, I want to make a barbecue so that my kids will always have a job. And yeah. I mean, so he, I found that the black workers at this factory were much more stoic about it closing, hmm. even though they were least likely statistically to get another job <laughs> that yes. was good. Because they were like, we've been through this. We've seen this before. And even though... Um, this is happening. We've still seen progress over the last 20 or 30 years. Is um, the white, the white workers were losing their minds. They, for them, it was like, we thought the company cared about us and now they didn't. They, they're, and they were like extremely, it was existential. There were, they were walking away from uh, severance packages because they couldn't stand being in the factory and watching their Mexican replacements be trained they couldn't take it like physically psychologically they fled some of them because they couldn't watch the mexicans take their jobs and so it was like uh to me it was the first time they had faced that and so we say well why is it that you have a white man and a black man working side by side in the same factory earning 25 dollars an hour and yet they're their reaction to this factory closing and moving to Mexico is 100% different. It's because of the history. The history matters. Those black men were like, oh, I remember a day when the union didn't want to train me, and now you don't want to train the Mexicans? You're a racist. But the white men were like, oh, my God, we're a union. You know, we need to stand together. Why? Let's stand together. And if we all stand together and refuse to train the Mexican replacements, maybe the, the factory will stay here and we'll save our jobs. Was there an effort to skip the training and not to train their replacements? Oh, yes. The union uh, stood very strong. Die-card union men, almost all of whom were white, refused to train their replacements. Hmm. And they thought that if they held off long enough, then Donald Trump would get in office and he would save the factory. Okay, that points us to Trump. Yeah. There's a great line in this recent piece that false hope is better than no hope. And- I guess when I, I, I know that the working class were incensed, understandably, that Hillary Clinton said, you know, in short, the coal mines are coal mines are not coming back. Yeah. The Democrats had sort of 
tried to talk tough or tried to imagine that they were being economic realists. They didn't have a sentimental vision of the unions. They saw, I don't know, this particular American sentimentality, I guess, is the only thing I can think of around the heyday of industrial jobs where everyone, you know, went to square dances together or had, you know, there was movie night and people took care of their, there was bowling and people took care of each other's kids, which does seem to have worked out for some people, not a race thing, but, you know, there was obviously a lot of alienation. There was union corruption in those days. So we kind of whitewashed those memories. Of course. Don't you think? Oh, Oh, of course. I mean, I've seen, trust me, I've, I've followed these people. So I know what, you know, I know why they, you know, they didn't always love their union membership. They felt that the union, you know, the union leaders took care of each other more than the workers on the floor. Mm -hmm. And I also want to give it to Bill Clinton in that Hmm. globalization was happening. Like, it's not like NAFTA and the, and the normalization of trade created it. Like it was already happening. And so they were saying, this is the best way to preserve American jobs mm-hmm. is to is to say, let's double down on our comparative advantage, our, our knowledge, our capital. Right. Mm-hmm. So the Silicon Valley, the Wall Street. But that leaves out blue collar people. Yeah. So essentially, we said, you know, a bunch of people with college degrees and money decided that our comparative advantage was our knowledge and capital. And right. And the blue collar people were not hearing where to go. Where I get into this economy. And even today, our answer to them is universal basic income. You're useless. I'm going to give you a check. And that is not, we need a better message. We need a better message. Well, we never took that next step, right? We never took that next right, step. We didn't of even give them, giving that. them the knowledge, right? We didn't, but I also mean we didn't transform our education system in order to accommodate this new economy. You know, one of the best investments the United States could make is making sure that there's a guidance counselor to counsel every freshman in high schools around the country, to talk to them about what their options are in terms of vocational schools, in terms of apprenticeships, in terms of thinking about what the actual jobs will be available to them when they graduate from high school and then, you know, in large numbers in college. And I I do think that's one thing that Trump has done. He has invested in some of this uh, apprenticeships, like which uh, Obama, it's a bipartisan thing. Obama did a lot and Trump has, has continued it, which is to make sure that blue there, this is the way you can get good paying jobs without like four years of a really expensive college is to invest in these kind of apprenticeships where you learn how, you know, the robots of today in today's factory are complicated, right? Mm -hmm. And so you've got to, you've got to learn some basic stuff. A lot of it's coding and, and programming, and you can teach that in high school and, and in partnerships with, with businesses. And some of that's happening in places like Tennessee and North Carolina, you see it. And, and that's what needs to be we need a lot more of that. And we need a lot less of you guys are just stupid. And why can't you learn economics and see that this is good, that free trade and globalization is good for us? I would take it one step further. I would say what we actually need to be teaching students today is how to be nimble and agile learners, how to keep learning, how to learn quickly on your feet and to adjust. Because I mean, as as Farah mentioned earlier, right? Like, truck drivers, that's not going to be a profession, you know, and I don't think that we've 
really prepared, particularly our young people, but even some of our older folks in the United States for the fact that they're going to have to have a different job every decade. Yeah, but... The problem is that is absolutely inconsistent with the union thinking, which is, uh, you know, as Farah was saying, the seniority piece of this and this sort of status and family um, alignment with these these jobs. I don't know if you saw Deaths of Despair. um, It came out. Yeah. Okay. So this is the book by two Princeton professors, Deaths of Despair and the Future of Capitalism, Angus Deaton and Anne Case. And I'm curious what you make of it, because in my view... Uh, that you know they focus on a specific part of the working class which are not the ones that just want to keep their families together and go to church and have consistency in their lives and make America great these are the so-called shit life sufferers who are on there i think they say that the way to think about them is you know the men think it's something like four out of 10 in this working class group, I believe in Kentucky, don't have romantic partners or wives. And there are many girlfriends beyond the mother of their children. I just thought that was an interesting phrase. And they're not seeing their kids at all. And they are, you know, they're their own boss, meaning, you know, they don't have to answer to anyone. But by then, all their ideas of liberty you know, being able to have multiple girlfriends and not answer to anyone have turned into sitting in in front of Fox News with, you know, a bottle of Oxycontin and no exaggeration. And that is very far from the portrait of these steelworkers that you have. No, it's not. No, it's not. These are their their kids and them too. Like uh, I followed three steelworkers. None of them had an exact nuclear family. Okay. Dan and the woman I followed had two kids with two different men and never married. And now she's with a third. Um, And your life is more complicated, right? When, when you're, it's just, it's well, life is more complicated when you're poor. It's come right. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that jobs and marriage go hand in hand for reasons that we haven't always figured out. But like, when you look at, at, when you read William Julius Wilson's, when work disappears about Mm -hmm. what happened to the black family, when, when the factories moved away from the inner cities and left no jobs. And then you have these neighborhoods where, um, where more people are not working than working. What happens to the fabric of society? What happens? And that's what now we're just seeing it with white people. Yes. And I, it's the same principle, <laughs> like jobs matter. It really, the dignity of work matters. And I'm not, even if, even if we end up with something like universal basic income, we still have to have something for people to do. I just think it's so fundamental and people with jobs rarely have to think about what it, what it's like to think of a future where you might never be employable again and what that what your relationship is to society itself. And I mean, just think about the fact that these places, the white places that lost factories to, to Chinese uh, trade, to, mm-hmm. to import substitution from China, they went GOP. Why? Why would you, they're, they're more and more reliant on government assistance, more and more reliant on disability checks, yet they vote for the GOP. Why? You know, they want their jobs back. They don't, yeah. want, they don't want to live on the dole. And so like, this is something we, we need to, and, and they're willing to say, get rid of environmental regulations, get rid of minimum wage, Get rid of all of these things that have protected us. Even go, let's go. We will even forgive Trump for his right to work 
yeah, you know, this this anti-unionism, like Trump is very, he's not good for unions. They're willing to forgive him all that. Why? Because he says, I'm bringing your jobs back. And that's still his most persuasive argument today is before COVID, unemployment was low. There were a lot of jobs because we we took away the strangling regulations from businesses. Trump was kind of like a grand bargain. You know, I'm going to tariff these um, these Chinese imports. I'm going to put all these tariffs on washing machines from South Korea. But the business people aren't going to complain because I'm going to turn around and give them all this money and a tax cut across in the back door. Economic nationalism. It, it, and, and and he has some kind of harebrained mad formula for how to bring jobs back. And it hasn't actually worked the way that he wanted because he's so unpredictable that nobody's investing in their factories because you don't know tomorrow you might de- declare a tariff here and there. But like the idea of an American president standing up there and saying, I it's my job to bring jobs back. We haven't heard that in a long time. Hmm. And we've we've heard people say, oh, well, you know, free market. Yeah. And but the market is never free when you're talking about Wall Street banks that need a bailout. Yeah. It also seems interesting that the college educated classes sometimes are extremely cash poor or in debt, but live on consumer debt, which pegs their fortunes to the banks and interest rates. And that's not what is happening in these communities because maybe they're they don't have the same credit union or they don't have right. they can't get you know limitless credit cards and that also seems you know you just you think of a lot of people even in our profession which is like blinked out at various points and people lost jobs that were newspaper guild jobs right. and I'm thinking of myself and you know gutted health health insurance and all all that but there's still a keeping up appearances component to yep. <laughs> to consumer debt which doesn't exist for lots of people who've lost their unions I also want to say that I know there are a lot of rich people who vote for Trump too I'm not claiming that there aren't. There's a lot of people who vote for Trump just because of the tax cut. Yeah. But my piece was, I think they were also the same people who voted for Mitt Romney. And the people who I argue put Trump in office during the primaries in selecting him instead of Jeb Bush, they were the people, these factory workers who basically had, you know, they flocked to him for these reasons that we're talking about. What I'm so happy for, Farah, is that you've broken this particular group out of, say, the evangelical community. I know there's overlaps, but this is a this is a very distinct set of interests. And um, Trump did luck out in creating a coalition of, you know, rich doctors and lawyers. And I don't know, are they still the blue collar, I guess, is what you call them, although they seem at times like the working poor and then evangelicals. And it tends in all the uh, articles about flyover country, they tend to blur together. So you give this very specific face and angle. But if Trump's allure to this contingent is just that he makes promises that false hope's better than no hope, well, th- we've had four years. It's been four years since the, he kept the one carrier factory open. And is there, you know, is there a kind of accountability there? Are they better off than they were four years ago? Probably not, even if they were. Well, before COVID, before COVID, I was predicting he was going to be reelected before COVID because, you know, how many times you have an incumbent that in a good economy isn't reelected? 
right? So uh, yeah. before COVID, I thought he, I, I was betting he would be reelected. And, you know, if you think about a guy who manages to get the worker on the factory floor and the CEO mm-hmm. on the same page for different reasons, you know, that was very formidable. But now it's kind of like you see with, with COVID, how many of those jobs were shitty jobs? Yes. How many of those jobs had no protection? How many of those jobs were just, oh, you know, sorry, well, you know, and, and, you know, those of us who are able to keep working, again, the knowledge economy, the people who work in areas that are the U.S. comparative advantage, we're, you know, we're still working. And yet, if you're in a factory, chances are you've been laid off. Yeah. Or if you've gone back, a, a union person was saying there's there so many safety regulations as to make work almost impossible. Right. And that's where the Trump anti-regulation, like I see his response to COVID is kind of with that in, in of a piece with the anti-regulation. That's mm-hmm. another mm-hmm. strong, you could, I could have done a whole column about the anti-regulation sentiment of his supporters, people, farmers who say, well, Obama told me I had to, I couldn't grow lettuce at the same time as I'm having cows because they're too close together and equali. And it's like, I can't make a living without, yeah. you know, on these regulations. And, you yeah. know, that's, a whole right, I think you can there. still, I think you can still write that column. I'll say. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So um, seeing an assignment here and now. Yeah, Katie, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, I think this is all getting to a bigger point that we sometimes lose in particularly jur- journalistic circles. Um, the world is not binary for most voters. Uh, it's very situational. It's very heterodox. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, there are certain people who can 100% agree that Trump is the right president because he is creating a Supreme Court that reflects their personal values, mm-hmm. but also at the same time really wishes that they had childcare supplements to help them get through this COVID experience, who has had a loved one die of COVID and blame the Trump administration for that, yet also really fears for their future when it comes yeah. to employment. And, you know, that is one of the reasons, sorry, to bring it all back to Sunday's package, we really felt that it had to have gravitas and it had to be multi-layered and bring in a lot of different threads and talk to as many different kinds of voters as we could, because we just felt that, you know, at the end of the day, we couldn't let this moment pass without making sure that we had our last say on the first four years of the Trump administration. Kathleen Kingsbury and Farah Stockman are both members of the New York Times editorial board. Thanks again. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us. And that's it for today's show. What did you think? Trumpcast is back to twice a week in anticipation of the finale or whatever comes next. Join up as we ramp up to election day and let's meet up on Twitter. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And don't forget to join Slate Plus. It's really more important now than ever. The stakes couldn't be higher. That's what I want to say. Like that election era thing. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus and sign up. Plus members get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free for only $35 for the first year. And best of all, you'll be supporting our work. So go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan and engineered by Richard Stanislaw. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.